Welcome to Backyard Bookshelf, an audio journal program intended for a print-impaired audience that features fiction, nonfiction, and other readings with a local connection. I'm Charlene, and for the next hour, I'll be reading Episode 2 of The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight by Andrew Leland. We meet Andrew Leland as he's suspended in the liminal state of the soon-to-be blind. He's midway through his life with retinitis pigmentosa, a condition that ushers those who live with it from sightedness to blindness over years, even decades. He grew up with full vision, but starting in his teenage years, his sight began to degrade from the outside in, such that he now sees the world as if through a narrow tube. Soon, but without knowing exactly when, he will likely have no vision left. Full of apprehension, but also dogged curiosity, Leland embarks on a sweeping exploration of the state of being that awaits him, not only the physical experience of blindness, but also its language, politics, and customs. He negotiates his changing relationships with his wife and son and with his own sense of self as he moves from his mainstream, typical life to one with a disability. Part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation, The Country of the Blind represents Leland's determination not to merely survive this transition, but to grow from it, to seek out and revel in that which makes blindness enlightening. Thought-provoking and brimming with warmth and humor, The Country of the Blind is a deeply personal and intellectually exhilarating tour of a way of being that most of us have never paused to consider and from which we have much to learn. Dr. Heck and Lively's prediction turned out to be accurate. During my 20s, years passed without my really noticing a change in vision. I came close to getting beaten up once when I stepped on a rockabilly's boot at a dimly lit dive bar. I stayed in my seat until the credits had rolled at the end of every movie. Games like tennis got harder. I couldn't track the ball as it whizzed in from my absent peripheral vision. I left people hanging for high fives and handshakes. But real blindness was still mostly abstract, a distant eventuality in the same category as fatherhood or death. This will probably happen someday, but not today. My life held the lightest flavor of blindness, like a single lemon wedge floating in a pitcher of iced water. During these years, I enjoyed a series of spectacularly doomed romantic relationships. Then one of my Jewish insurrectionist friends from high school set me up with a friend of his, Lily. She was a fifth-year comparative literature Ph.D. finishing her dissertation at Berkeley. I was living in San Francisco by then, working at a literary magazine. It was a blind date. Our eyes met. She had long brown hair, large, watchful eyes, and a hyphenated last name. The second part of her surname, Watcher, means watcher in German. It was originally Wachnachter a likely new match of Nachtwachter, or Night Watchman. Her dissertation dealt with attention, the ways that a nation during wartime must be on alert 
and how that experience of watchfulness gets reproduced in its poetry. This seemed cool. I fell in love with her. We moved in together, the night blind and the night watcher, and adopted a dog. Soon she got her first job offer at a university somewhere in Missouri. I drove her through the rain to the Marin Headlands, where we walked our dog up to a dramatic promontory overlooking the Pacific Ocean a few yards from a crumbling anti-aircraft mount. As she walked ahead of us, I knelt down and said to our dog, Oh no, what have you eaten? Lily turned around and said, What did he eat? I presented her with a small jewel box. Oh, what did you do, she said, and I asked her to marry me. On our walk back down the trail to the car, the leaves on the trees still dripping with rainwater, I felt the need to say, You remember I'm glowing, going blind, right? At the time, it felt like a joke. It was a joke, because of course she remembered. We had talked about it many times. It was also a joke because it seemed so distant, like reminding her I was mortal. But blindness was present in our relationship from the beginning. When we went out dancing, as we did that night after we got engaged, I made my way through the club with a hand on her shoulder to avoid treading on any more rockabilly feet. I was still driving during the day then, and more than once I'd had to race the sun to get us home before my driving became even more dangerous. Part of me, though, really wanted to know, did she realize what she was getting herself into? Did she know what it meant to be blind? Did I? Mirroring my joke, she replied, Oh, really? You are? Maybe I shouldn't marry you then. But then she added, I know, and yes, I still want to marry you. Later that year, I retired from driving altogether. I was making a left turn, having checked and seen a clear path, and suddenly a furious pedestrian was banging on my hood, shouting, Open your effing eyes! A few weeks later, at a four-way stop, I hit the gas and Lily yelped as a cyclist zoomed past, inches from the car's grill. I was in my early thirties, and my retinal degeneration was just starting to rev up. We moved to Columbia, a university town in the middle of Missouri, where Lily had gotten the job. She drove us the whole way. Our house turned out to be a 40-minute walk from downtown. The days got short, snow covered the ground, and we knew almost no one. Working from home, I started to feel isolated, like a dog waiting to be walked, springing to life with the jingle of car keys, tail wagging, wondering, where are you going? To a park? Can I come? I casually researched blindness support groups online. A retinal specialist in San Francisco had written the name of one of the, on the back of a brochure years ago, but I hadn't felt like I needed such a resource then. My night blindness was a conversation piece, a humorous liability at parties. But now, more blind, I was becoming more curious and probably, though I couldn't quite admit it, more in need of support. I found a meeting of the local chapter of the National Federation of the Blind, the NFB, and reached out to two of the organizers 
who invited me to their fall picnic at a park 10 miles from our house. I invited Lily along, in part because otherwise I would have needed to take a taxi, but also because I didn't want to show up alone. At the park, we wandered among giant gazebo-like shelters, cicadas screaming. Eventually, we found the group, about 15 people gathered around a few picnic tables covered in an intensely Midwestern potluck spread. The meeting was already in progress. The handful of sighted people there looked at us silently, and it seemed safe to assume that none of the blind people knew we were there. We stood uncomfortably at the side of the shelter as the group argued about the best ways to promote an upcoming trivia night fundraiser. Was buying an ad in a local paper worth it? I felt Lily's discomfort burning next to me like a radiator. Are you okay, I whispered. Do you want to leave? I could stay if you want to, she said, desperate to leave. When we got back to the car, she said, that was really weird. I agreed, but I also recoiled from her characterization. I had noticed the blind woman in a wheelchair using a strange device that looked like it somehow converted the text on a laptop screen into metallic braille. I'd noticed the other people with multiple disabilities and the modest scale at which the group was operating, arguing over how to spend their tiny publicity budget. If I had gone to the meeting to find other blind people whom I might commiserate with or learn from or befriend, the first impression was more off-putting than I'd expected. Part of it was surely just ge geographical culture shock, but a great part was a different kind of culture shock, our discomfort with disability. I know now that the people there had experience and knowledge that could have helped me but I didn't go back to another meeting. Being newlyweds in central Missouri with no friends or family for hundreds of miles made having a baby seem like an obvious next move. Though RP is an inherited condition, I cannot find it in my family history, and Lily and I didn't spend much time worrying over the possibility that we'd be passing it on to our child. Our understanding of the genetics was fuzzy. The doctors didn't know which mutation had caused my condition. In the examination room at the OBGYN's office, before our discussion of what disabilities we wanted to test for and under what conditions we would terminate the pregnancy, I found an activity book on creationist biology called Understanding God's World, tucked into the magazine rack, which added a note of ancient superstition to our visit. A technician scrawled the word boy on a scrap of paper and folded it in half. We walked to a lakeside park next to a beach slick with goose shit to read it. That October, a few days before Lily's due date, we watched Paul Ryan and Joe Biden bicker and snipe at each other in the vice presidential debate and fell asleep. A few minutes after I'd drifted off, Lily woke me to say that her water had broken. Her mom, who was visiting in hopes that she'd be in town for the birth, drove us to the hospital. The roads were wet and empty, and I exerted a useless vigilance from the back seat. In the delivery room, I tried to stay out of the way. 
I tend to miss signals that someone needs to use the space I'm occupying, so I found a patch of wall that was empty of medical equipment and parked myself there, moving forward to rub Lily's back and then receding when the nurses took over. Early the next morning, when Oscar was finally born, tiny and beautiful and screaming, the nurse asked if Dad wanted to cut the umbilical cord. This seemed like a terrible idea, handing surgical scissors to a part-blind guy and asking him to use them on the most tender creature on earth. I awkwardly declined. The nurse pushed back. This was in the printed-out birthing plan we'd brought along. Nope, that's your job, Dad. They showed me the stretch of umbilical cord they'd marked between two clamps. I was to take the gleaming scissors and cut right there. I belabored these instructions. The possibility that I would accidentally slice his belly or otherwise puncture him seemed real. Then I inhaled and cut the cord. When I held him for the first time, his tiny red face filled my central vision. I could see nothing else. I couldn't drive to the store in the middle of the night for diapers, but once the diapers were in the house, I became proficient at changing them. Walking with Oscar, I had to double my care. I occasionally slammed my head against cabinets, and I was haunted by the prospect of accidentally crushing his face into a door frame. There were some close calls, though no more than a fully sighted parent might have had, including one mild concussion at a playground that was, in my defense, pretty unsafe for any child. We managed not to kill him. As he learned to speak and soon wondered aloud why I couldn't see the fork I'd just dropped, I tried to explain my vision to him. For some reason, in these conversations, I always used the word peepers. Like, I couldn't find the fork because I've had bad peepers. I was trying to find soft, funny language for blindness. I didn't want him to see it as a sad thing. When he was four, I overheard him say to a friend, We need to clean up these toys now, otherwise my dad will trip over them. He has bad peepers. The world looked more or less as it always had, but my blind spots were growing even larger. If before I was surprised that I couldn't find a pencil or a mug, now entire cars and small buildings went unnoticed until I swiveled my head into just the right position. I was teaching part-time at the university, and one day the two women who ran the English department office greeted me on their way to lunch. How's your leg doing, Andrew? Sharon asked. My leg? We, yeah, we saw you limping yesterday, Paula added. Did you hurt yourself? Are you feeling better? I chewed on the question until I finally realized what they were talking about. My vision had degenerated to the point where even during the day I was worried about running into people or fire hydrants or anything that might fall into the growing chasm of my dead peripheral vision. So I developed a mincing gait that I unconsciously employed in order to brace myself against any unexpected impact, called a phantom limp. No false moves. I was treading lightly, 
gingerly through the throngs of frat guys walking in unpredictable vectors across campus. I had already purchased a collapsible white cane that I carried in my bag but rarely used. I was deeply self-conscious about it and only unfolded it when I was alone in a dark, crowded, unfamiliar place or while traveling where the alternative would be knocking everyone's beer into their laps, as I did once back in San Francisco, two full beers directly into the laps of a pair of women, one of whom, my friends later told me, was a winning contestant on Top Chef. Lily got a grant that released her from teaching for the year to finish her book, and we temporarily moved into the garden apartment below her dad and stepmom's place in New York. My vision was deteriorating at a faster rate. I noticed changes with each passing season rather than every year or two. One night, after watching a concert in Harlem with my friend Jason, we finished a joint and decided to walk the length of Manhattan back downtown. I decided that tonight was the night I'd break in the cane for real, pantomiming blindness. I swung it awkwardly in front of me as we walked south, passing through darkened parks and into and out of many bars. We tried to use the cane to get into a fashion party we wandered past near Chelsea Piers, Jason appealing to the bouncer's potential sense of pity. Here, sir, is a totally blind man who merely wishes to attend your event. Won't you let us in? As I stood drunkenly by, holding the cane in my fingers like a giant fountain pen, doodling on the pavement, the bouncer didn't let us in. When I fell into bed that night, I felt like I'd broken the seal on cane walking. Picking up Oscar from daycare the next week, I unfurled my cane as we descended into the subway station. Waiting for the train, Oscar secured to my torso in his carrier, we absorbed all the stares we got, the blind guy surely about to fall onto the tracks with an innocent baby strapped to his chest. The first night I used my cane in front of Lily, we'd left Oscar with her dad and stepmom to go out to dinner with some friends in Greenpoint. The restaurant was fashionable, which means it was lit by a single Edison bulb running at half power. Finding a bathroom in a dark restaurant was up there with leaving a movie before it ended in terms of normal social activities that inspired deep anxiety in me. But then I remembered I had my cane, still faintly glowing with the new power I'd absorbed on my night out with Jason. I excused myself from the table and unfurled it with a sheepish, sheepish, self-conscious flourish. As I stood up, Lily surprised me by saying that she didn't think I needed the cane here. The moment was so fraught with shame even before she spoke that I immediately accepted her suggestion. A waitress walked by and I asked her where the bathroom was, folding the cane back up as I followed her. Lily and I had barely discussed the cane before that night, and she didn't fully understand why I needed it. She'd never seen me with it in public before. She had no sense of my anxiety about finding the bathroom, for example. The appearance of the cane had caught her totally off guard. 
The problem with the cane is that, like the word blind, people read it as a sig signifier for a total absence of sight. I was faced with a dilemma. Use the cane and feel fraudulent, like I'm trying to pass as a blind guy, or pass as a sighted person and risk increasingly serious injury and mayhem to myself and others. I have wondered if that moment in the restaurant set me back a year or two cane-wise. I know I would have benefited from using it more, not so much to tap around using the cane as an extension of the body, as more fully blind people do, but as a signal to others to give me space. For Lily, though, the cane made me look vulnerable, helpless as soon as I unfolded it. That dinner forced us into an uncomfortable confrontation. Even now, almost a decade later, I still feel pangs of cane-related embarrassment or fraudulence nearly every day. Lily got a new job teaching at a liberal arts college in New England. I resolved that when we arrived, I would start fresh as a full-time, out-of-the-closet, cane-wielding blind person. When I met her new colleagues, I held the cane in plain sight. These days, though I still have enough vision to read large print and recognize faces and see when the don't walk sign starts flashing, I use the cane everywhere I go. It's cured me of the limp. When my cane connects with something, a curb, a hydrant, that I genuinely had no idea was there, it's gratifying. In these moments, my pantomime of blindness, the feeling that I'm faking it, fades. I feel, for a moment, like a real blind person. I can now track the decline in my vision month by month rather than year by year. This can be so scary that it sometimes makes me feel like I can't breathe. And yet, alongside the panic, there are the beginnings of a weird solace. Walking to Penn Station to catch the Amtrak home from New York on a recent spring afternoon, I spotted a guy leaning with his back against a deli watching me. As I passed, we made brief eye contact and I saw something sour in his expression. I looked away and he said the thing that I've read on so many strangers' faces since I started using the cane. You can see. He spoke in the sneering voice you'd use to say, give me an effing break. I felt a painful, vindicating satisfaction, a long-deferred confirmation of the thing I'd always suspected everyone was thinking about me anyway. With some shrillness, I replied, actually, I can. Standing in the crowd at Penn Station afterward, I thought about my periodic desire for the eye disease to just get it over with and take the rest of my sight. I wanted to be relieved of seeing the way people look at blindness, the scorn, the condescension, the entitled, almost sexual leer. Skepticism, pity, revulsion, curiosity. I know I've looked at blind people this way too, like when Lily and I stood at an uncomfortable remove at the National Federation of the Blind's Mid-Missouri Chapter Picnic in that sweltering park years ago. But I was a different person then. I didn't really think of myself as blind. 
Lately, I've begun to feel a stronger desire for solidarity, for community, to meet other people who had had this experience of the many ways that the sighted world expresses fear, discomfort, or condescension around blindness. I felt ready to take a more purposeful step across the border into the country of the blind. Chapter 2 National Blindness As soon as I passed through the sliding doors of the convention center, everyone was blind. A blind child was nestled in his sighted mother's arms, asleep or just taking refuge in her neck, his short white cane dangling from his hand. A nuclear family and brightly colored vacation wear walked past, blind parents guided by their two-sighted children. A pair of hotel employees stood guard over the place where a guide dog had had an accident, protecting the crowd from flowing into it. The National Federation of the Blinds National Convention draws more than 3,000 attendees a year, nearly all of them blind. I kept repeating this number to myself and in messages to friend. I'm hanging out with 3,000 blind people in Florida. It was such a novelty. Blindness was a group activity. The sound of dozens of canes tapping on the tile floors echoed through the lobby. The fact that more people were blind than sighted created a different sense of space. The social order of movement, of distance between individuals had shifted. Pairs of blind people walked together down a wide hallway. They looked like they knew where they were going, so I followed them. A moment later, I found myself overcome with emotion. I pulled off to the side, leaned against a closed shop's window, and tried to figure out what had happened. It was physically stressful to be there. If I stayed still, chances were good that someone was going to gently plow into me. But as I stood pressed against the beachwear boutique, I absorbed how alone I'd felt in blindness, even my provisional junior-level vision. Entering a space where it was the norm, where we outnumbered them, was overwhelming. Even before I'd spoken to anyone, I could conceive of myself in a small but sincere way as a member of a blind community. I had brought an audio recorder with me. Listening back to the recording, the sound of tapping canes envelops my sniffling. It's super intense, I mumbled into the recorder. I made my way farther down the hall, but I kept having to retreat into various little alcoves to cry and murmur some more. The Rosen Shingle Creek is colossal. The NFB occupied an entire concourse, but it was just one piece of a much larger honeycomb. Reading the list of meetings scheduled at the center that day, blindness seemed like just another American industry, a trade union with its own periodicals and subcommittees, banquet dinners, and corporate sponsors. I pressed my way through the swarm of canes, trying to find the main hall. The most salient factor determining the quality of a blind person's life may not be what culture or historical period they live in, but the economic and familial situation they're born into. 
Today, as in the Middle Ages, there are blind people who live at the margins of society, shunned by their families, living lives of unremitting poverty, while blind contemporaries live lives of relative ease. John of Luxembourg, the 14th century king of Bohemia, ruled for the last decade of his life without vision. Nicholas Saunderson, blind from infancy, held the Lucasian chair in mathematics at the University of Cambridge ten years after Isaac Newton. But the reality is that such people represent a tiny minority of the blind experience. The disability historians Catherine Kudlik and Zena Weigand write that despite the complete absence of SAT statistics, we can be certain that in 19th century France, as in earlier times, most blind people came from the lower classes and faced extremely difficult lives. The lower classes made up the majority of the population and the causes of blindness, illness, poor hygiene, malnutrition, accidents on the job, were all far more likely to accompany poverty. As I've hung around blind communities, I've encountered a few joking references to the blind 1%, the kids who show up to their blind summer programs with the latest assistive technology, which can quickly add up to tens of thousands of dollars worth of braille gizmos and smart goggles. I've likewise been struck by the message board, board posts of blind people who casually mention the reams of tech they buy every year, complaining of the di difficulties they have syncing their Apple Watches to their iPad Pros ever since they upgraded to the latest iPhone. It seems likely that I will join this privileged blind class. My grandfather, Marvin Neil Simon, the grandson of Russian immigrants, grew up in a crowded apartment in Washington Heights, but dropped the Marvin from his name and found success as a comedy writer, turning the stories of his working-class childhood into blockbuster Broadway films and plays like Brighton Beach Memoirs and Lost in Yonkers. As a result, I have a financial cushion to soften my fall into blindness. When I recently became convinced that PCs were more accessible than Macs, for instance, I impulsively bought myself a second laptop with Windows and a license for the JAWS screen reader, which works far better with Microsoft Word, without having to agonize over the cost or petition my state's blindness commission for assistance. I've made a career for myself as an editor, an audio producer, and a writer, all work that I can theoretically continue even without the central vision I still have. I feel confident that I'll be able to keep finding jobs, but I'm just now entering a space where blindness is really intruding and where anyone Googling me will instantly know I'm blind. I have the naive sense that my accumulated professional experience will insulate me, that I'm not about to be shunted into the blind trades, industrial labor like caning chairs or tying straw onto brooms. But the doubts that keep blind people out of other jobs will soon affect me too. 
Magazine fact-checkers have tactfully begun asking how I know what I reported in ways that I'm sure they don't ask cited writers. These doubts find their way into my own thinking. How will I work as a journalist once I cannot gather visual details independently? Walking around the NFB convention in Orlando, I felt the simultaneous sense of belonging and alienation that has come to mark my experience of blindness. My own provisional blindness played a big part in this ambivalence. Didn't I have too much vision to really be part of this club? Another part of it was what some activists call internalized ableism. I was looking at blind people with the purient, condescending curiosity that felt so hurtful when turned on me. But there was also a sense of class consciousness burbling beneath the surface. Only 16% of blind Americans have a college degree, less than half the national average, and more than a fifth don't finish high school, more than double the rate of their sighted peers. Blind people are twice as likely to live in poverty. But the really astonishing statistic concerns blind labor. The U.S. unemployment rate usually averages around 5%, peaking at the height of the pandemic in 2020 when nearly 15% of Americans were out of work. For blind people, the unemployment rate is 14 times that of the general population, hovering at around 70%. It's hard for me to accept this, that holding a full-time job, any job, is a minority position among the blind, even in the U.S., even in 2023. As I try to understand blindness, a depressing reality emerges. One of the fundamental experiences that most blind people share is joblessness. Encountering these statistics changed the stakes of what it meant for me to become a member of the blind community. I'd initially approached it as a sort of cultural or philosophical question. What is the phenomenology of blindness? What's its flavor, its folklore, its vibe? But as I considered the lives of most blind people, the question of what blindness is became inescapably political. Every state in the U.S. has its own commission for the blind, staffed by vocational rehabilitation counselors trained to help blind people find employment with government dollars earmarked for essential tools and services, canes, screen reading software, magnifiers, and training. But clearly this system, overwhelmingly run by sighted administrators and teachers, was failing blind people. State support, supplemented by relief from private charitable institutions, has proven itself insufficient in the face of that astonishingly durable 70% unemployment figure. What was the source of this problem? Was it purely based on the low expectations that sighted people had for the blind, or did blind people themselves play a role? The NFB's official history reports that one of the greatest disappointments of its founder, Jacobus Teen Brock, 
was the reluctance of many successful blind persons of the professional middle class to be identified with a movement of rank-and-file blind people who not only were often unemployed, but were categorized as unemployable. What could blind people do to pull themselves out of this economic marginalization? I found my way into the main hall. It was massive and about two-thirds full. I saw a handful of people using the braille labels hanging from poles marking each state affiliate's location to find their destination. But the approach most people used was a technique I came to think of as addressing the void. A blind person would stand, stopping midstream, holding their cane vertically in a resting position. They looked off into oblivion with the semi-arbitrary gaze that blind people often have. Sight gives a target for the gaze to follow. With sight removed, the gaze remains, and by gaze, I just mean an intelligent face pointed in the direction of the thing it's regarding. You don't need working eyes to have a gaze. Statues have gazes, but with sight removed, the gaze tilts and strays. The expression on the face of a blind gazer paused in the world takes on an inwardly worrying, computational, deep listening aspect. After a few moments posed and frozen, careful attention, this person would announce firmly and loudly, to whisper was futile, whoever responded would need to both hear them and realized they were being spoken to. Is this North Dakota? Because the hall was so dense with people, this approach usually worked. Nebraska, somebody cheerfully replied. Her gay own gaze aimed past the questioner. Keep going. I arranged to meet the journalist Will Butler outside the Independence Market, so-called because it sold tools from talking thermometers to digital braille note-takers that allowed blind people to function independently without sighted assistance. I'd first come across Will's writing online a few years before. He published semi-gonzo dispatches for Vice from music festivals and other events with taglines like, Horse racing is totally depressing when you're blind. He was working as the communications director for Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired, a blindless rehabilitation agency in San Francisco. Introducing myself, I mentioned where I was with my RP, legally blind, using a cane, but still reading print. Normally, people respond to this information with an expression of sympathy, borderline condolences. Will replied, at the risk of sounding like an insane person, whenever someone tells me their son has RP or they're going blind, I have to stop myself from saying, that's awesome, because aside from a few obvious obstacles, blindness has really opened up a lot of intellectual doors for me. At the Independence Market, we caned our way past dozens of booths, slick corporate displays, and homemade setups from local delegations. It was an aural assault. On top of the roar of chattering convention-goers, there was an army of talking signs, volunteers who called out, candy bars from the NFB of Wisconsin, 
or NFB t-shirts here. Will had to leave for a meeting he'd scheduled with a blindness tech startup CEO, and when I met him for lunch the next day, I was surprised that he didn't recognize me even as I got close. He obviously had some vision during the general session. I'd watched him use his phone visually, though he did hold it pressed almost to his nose. But I might have assumed that he could see more than he does. I tried to figure out a natural way to tell him that I was next to him. Will, I bellowed, about twice as loud as necessary. What's happening? He flinched, and I hated myself, making a note to find a better technique than violent cheerfulness to indicate my arrival to a blind person. We made our way over to the restaurant. As we read our light, large print menus, Will said we might have to move tables. Why, I asked. It's stressing me out, he said, watching these blind people get off course and crash into us. We were sitting at the first table in the hallway from the convention center to the hotel, and it had become a sort of shoreline that washed up person after person making their way down the hall. We both watched as a woman walked directly into our table. She apologized and asked us where the lobby was. I gave her bad directions. If you move to your left, go straight five feet and turn right. She veered off course into a little cul-de-sac the hotel had festooned with low tables and upholstered wing chairs. Should I go help her, I asked. She'll figure it out, Will said. This is the one place where I don't feel bad giving bad directions. There are so many people who can help them. The blind have always lived in tension with the sighted people who make it their business to help them. The world's first state-run hospice for the blind, the Cain's Vin, French for 1520s, of reference to the 300 blind people who originally lived there, was founded in Paris around 1260. Its residents wore special yellow fleur-de-lis badges to signify the king's protection and, in exchange for their labors, could count on room and board. Some had steady jobs. The bell ringer and the crier were blind, the historian Zena Weigand writes, as well as the managers of taverns situated within its walls. But for the most part, they were employed as full-time beggars, going out into the city accompanied by a sighted guide for a set number of hours each day. At first, the blind residents exerted some autonomy, meeting with sighted administrators to advocate for changes. But by 1522, a porter was installed to monitor the residents' activities, and they were required to maintain good behavior and perform various religious obligations. The Cain's Vin solidified the public image of the blind person as a professional beggar, and created a sense of resentment toward them, a perception that they were, as Wangan writes, the quintessential aristocrats of mendicancy, a fancy-sounding and less racially loaded version, perhaps, of the contemporary image of the welfare queen. Parisians expressed this resentment in a brutal entertainment that they organized a few blocks from the hospice in 1425. 
They dressed four blind men in battle armor, instructed them to carry a banner emblazoned with the image of a pig, and then marched them, along with an actual strong pig, down to a nearby park. The blind men were given batons and told that whoever killed the pig could keep it. A violent, inverted game of blind man's bluff ensued, a very strange battle, as one chronicler observed. When the stronger ones believed that they hit the pig, they hit each other, and if they had really been armed, they would have killed each other. Evidence from French literature suggests that entertainments like these were a regular occurrence. It wasn't until the late 18th century that the first schools for the blind in Europe were established. For the first time, a poor blind person could enter an institution that was designed to educate rather than merely house them as impotent medicants. But as revolutionary as this development was, leading most notably to the development of the Braille and literacy for the blind, it didn't solve the problem of acceptance in mainstream society. When Samuel Gridley Howe established the Perkins School, the first American school for the blind, he found that the success he had in socializing and educating blind children didn't result in opportunities for higher education or job placements in an industrializing nation. Students returned to Perkins frustrated by their search for work, and in 1840, Howe built a workshop to train Perkins students in semi-skilled labor, blind trades. Over the first half of the 20th century, schools for the blind and then independent contractors established hundreds of these sheltered workshops, paying thousands of blind people subsistence wages to produce goods like brooms and mops, some with exclusive government contracts for their sale. In this department, Howe wrote, the blind feel perfectly independent, being assured of the bread they eat, and if any surplus remains to them, it is far more prized than would be ten times the amount of alms. I asked Will if he had gotten blindness skills training at one of the NFB centers. He seemed so adept, so comfortable. He told me he's never had any training, but he thinks he gets around okay. He'd just returned from Japan, where he went on a few day trips alone. But he's quick to underplay his own abilities. Honestly, the cane is not that complicated of a thing, he said. It's the epitome of low-tech. When he was a freshman at Berkeley, Will was totally blind in his left eye, but he was otherwise normal. He drove a car and had a serious girlfriend with plans to take a summer trip to Paris with her. Then his good eye started to fail. He underwent three retinal detachment surgeries, and to recover, the doctors made him lie flat on his stomach for three months straight. At the end of the meditative but agonizing period, he was legally blind. He and his girlfriend never went to Paris and soon broke up. Then he gradually began to re-enter the world. Like me, Will spent those first few years ashamed of his cane, which he owned but never used, until it finally became clear that something had to change. One night, Will couldn't find a place to use the bathroom, so he peed in a quiet parking lot, 
which turned out to be that of a police station. He was nearly arrested. Run-ins like this started to add up. His friends knew he had vision problems, but no one apart from his mother encouraged him to get help. No sighted person says, get a cane, dude, Will says now. No one would ever think that because sighted people view the cane as a sad thing, as tragedy. The turning point was a trip he took with friends to Montreal. On the last night, Will and his friends stayed up all night partying, then took a 5 a.m. bus back to New York. At the border, custom officials gruffly roused them after everyone else had already exited the bus to go through customs. Will was deeply hungover and holding on to his much shorter friend for guidance. We probably looked like we were tripping, he said. He got an extra long grilling at passport control, and the whole bus had to wait as he tried to convince the border agents that he wasn't on drugs. As soon as he got back to New York, he resolved to use the cane from then on. That evening, he brought the cane out for the first time ever. I just happened to be with some good friends who were like, Dude, just bring it. Don't worry about it, Will said. They showed up at the bar where they were meeting a larger group, including a woman he had never met before, a friend of a friend. As they all sat down, occupying a cluster of tables, Will could hear her, two tables away, turn to his friend and say, Who's that? She was talking about him. Oh my God, she said. My roommate would love him. He's totally her type. Will spoke about this moment with reverence. I mean, I walked in there with a cane thinking, is anyone ever going to talk to me? Like, am I going to be totally ostracized? I felt the lowest I'd ever felt. And this girl somehow just had the capacity to look beyond it. It was almost like she didn't see it. It was like a gift from a higher power to be like, it's going to be okay. People are going to treat you fine. I told Will about my own anxieties, how I felt like an imposter, constantly vacillating between feeling too sighted to be blind and too blind to be sighted. You might be going blind for a long time, Will said. He chewed a little, then added, and at a certain point, you have to ditch the going blind narrative. That sounds kind of harsh, but you'll just be blind. And then you might be less blind or more blind, but you're still just blind. This did sound harsh, like he was suggesting that I was playing up my experience of going blind for effect, even holding it over someone like him who's already had his going blind moment in a dramatic and concentrated way. Even the phrase going blind is problematic for him now, Will said. Going blind has baked into it all the loneliness and isolation that we associate with blindness. A much more accurate way to describe it is becoming blind. Blindness is much more an arrival than a departure. It felt good to sit there and talk to Will. The few blind people I'd met up until then had all been at least 30 years older than I was, which made the kind of easy, honest conversation we were having now feel feel out of reach. Will said he wished he'd found someone to talk to like this when he first became blind. Now he gets to come to the NFB, where he's less blind than a lot of people. 
so I get to hold that over them. We laughed at this joke, even as we both recognized that it wasn't entirely a joke. The hierarchy of sight turned out to be more than a vague sensation, I thought, only I might feel. It was a common dynamic among blind people. It was a relief to hear him acknowledge it. Imagine, he said, there's probably 800 people here at the NFB who get treated as incompetence every day of their lives, and they get to come here and help people. That must feel so good. Early schools for the blind didn't prepare students for college or lift the prejudices of mainstream employers, but they did form the nucleus of a new politicized brand of blind group consciousness and the seeds of the organized blind movement. The cradle of this movement and of so much disability activism in the U.S. was in the Bay Area. In the 1880s at the California School for the Blind, CSB, in the soon-to-be-incorporated city of Berkeley, Newell Perry was in 10th grade. He had begun thinking seriously about his post-graduation prospects and would sit up at night with his friends trying to imagine what their future might hold. We'd never heard of a blind person going to college, he recalled, so they decided to write letters to the superintendents of all the state secondary schools for the blind they could find, explaining their talents and asking what they thought of their plans for higher ed. I think half of them answered, and none of them told us they thought the idea of college was good, Perry recalled later. Several said, don't try it. One of them said, you would be educating yourself only for a life of discontent. Meaning, of course, if we did get through the university and we couldn't do anything, we'd be in an awful fix. Maybe we'd be better off if we stayed ignorant. Nevertheless, Perry's teacher encouraged his ambitions, and in 1890, Perry became the first blind student to attend Berkeley High. He went on to become one of the first blind students to graduate from UC Berkeley, and by all accounts, had a distinguished academic career. After receiving a fellowship to teach math at Berkeley, he eventually earned a Ph.D. in mathematics from the University of Munich. But as he entered the job market, the low expectations of those blind school superintendents were echoed by university math departments. His return to Berkeley in 1912 to work as a teacher at the CSB can be seen from one angle as a failure. Rejected by the sighted world, he returned to the field of blindness. But Perry's passion for raising the prospects of blind people also made his decision a powerful one. This is still a common trajectory for many blind people. They achieve mainstream success, graduating from college, working in the real world, but then return to the blindness field to work as teachers or assistive technology trainers or accessibility consultants. It's a move animated in part by frustration with sighted prejudice, but also by a sense of solidarity with their blind compatriots. Perry, the kids knew him as Doc, became a celebrated mentor at CSB, urging generations of blind students to follow his example and attend mainstream high schools and universities. 
He traveled up and down California by train, eventually forming the California Council of the Blind, a statewide organization led by and for the blind to advocate for their rights. He was a savvy political player, often writing bills himself that he would encourage legislatures to adopt. During his time as the first president of the California Council, he got the state to pay for readers for any blind student attending college, hire job placement workers at schools for the blind, and reform several legal aid to the blind laws. As with any great teacher, one can find the strongest evidence of Perry's legacy in the success of his students. They became legislatures, scholars, and businessmen. CSB was co-ed, but Perry focused his efforts almost entirely on his male students. While he was ahead of his time in his thinking on disability, his views on gender were, unfortunately, far more representative of his era. Schools for the blind were also subject to the same segregation laws that mainstream schools were, and CSB was a white institution. His most celebrated student, Jacobus Tenbroke, had much in common with Perry. Both men grew up in rural poverty and both lost their vision in traumatic early childhood accidents. At eight years old, Perry contracted a terrible case of poison oak that would burst his eyeballs and temporarily put him in a coma. At seven, Tenbroke peered through a hole in an archery target, unaware that at that moment, his friend was letting fly his arrow and would fatally hit his mark. The arrow instantly blinded Tenbroke in his left eye, and a case of sympathetic ophthalmia soon blinded his right. You have been listening to Backyard Bookshelf, a production of Audio Journal, a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. If you would like a hard copy of our program schedule, either in large print or braille, please call 508-797-1117. Archived editions of this program are available on our website, audiojournal.org, or go to the Audio Journal app on your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. I'm Charlene, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.